From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. So that's why we bring Mandeep in here, because he's the tech guy for, along with Anurag Ran and the team there at Bloomberg Intelligence, a global tech team, which Mandeep now uh, runs with an iron fist, I am told. Uh, Mandeep, talk to us about these IPOs. Totally two different companies, Arm and Instacart. Um, how do you view Arm? Because that's kind of the one I think that's kind of got people's attention in the sense of, is this an AI play or isn't it? Well, so Arm clearly has a history in terms of, you know, being that core part of how AI has evolved and how chips have evolved because they are the IP providers when it comes to uh, computing and all the advancements that we have seen. And what they have told us is they have increased the royalty revenue. So basically they have increased the prices and everyone is on board in terms of paying the higher prices for their technology. So that's a good sign ahead of the IPO. And uh, I think from what we have gleaned so far, the IPO has been oversubscribed. Clearly, everyone believes this is a technology that's not going away. It can be replaced. And hence, even though the growth was slow, the fact that they can raise prices like this, it's a good sign ahead of the IPO. Instacart, on the other hand, completely different ball game. Marketplace business, we know all the marketplace businesses haven't done very well, including Uber and Lyft since the IPO. But the marketplace just, business, is, that, is Amazon a marketplace business yes, as well? Amazon is a yeah. uh, two-sided marketplace. Instacart is a three-sided marketplace where you've got all the grocery uh, kind of providers, you've got the shoppers, and then you've got the consumers. The problem, and, and ride-sharing, for example, is a two-sided marketplace. You only have the consumers and the drivers. So it's not a three-sided marketplace. The problem in a three-sided marketplace is your take rates are much lower because you have to split your take rates to uh, you know, two other providers. In a two-sided marketplace, it's a higher take rate. So Fascinating. Instacart's business, the unit economics look a lot better than uh, you know some of the other uh, providers, whether it's DoorDash or Uber, simply because they layer a lot more ads. For every dollar in transaction revenue, they make about 30 cents in ads. That's phenomenal for you know unit economics. Problem is the top line is decelerating. They have flat order growth. Marketplaces are scale businesses. Once your top line slows, even if you make you know 30 cents on a dollar for ads, that's not good enough because your scale isn't growing. And, and that is where I, I think they're pricing the IPO appropriately to reflect that slowing. That's good, kind of, good, good yeah. bet if you feel like COVID's coming back, Paul. I do not. 
I know, but I'm saying if you do, you know, <laughs> do not because that would grow their top line that uh, would masterfully that would at least for a, a maybe moment. Maybe there was a pull forward during the COVID time. I mean, all these companies grew 100 yeah. percent plus uh, triple digit growth. So yeah. I guess for Instacart, one of the real questions will be valuation. So just walk us through kind of where this thing was valued at its peak when people were going nuts getting stuff delivered home to maybe where it is now. Yeah, so at its peak, it was around $39 billion valuation in 2021, and that's uh, when, you know... See, this, this is what I say, being an old, you know, old codger Wall Street guy, that's Silicon Valley valuation. That's the kids. Then when you want to come to the public markets, then you got to talk to people like me. That's what happened here. <laughs> well, I, I, and I think back in, uh, you know, 2019, when Lyft went public... Yep. They went public at a $20 billion valuation. They raised more than $2 billion in an IPO. Right. Well, clearly things have reset completely now. Uh, and I think... Uh, yeah, they're worth a fifth of that now. No, Lyft is, is worth a gajillion. I mean, they're... No, they're worth a fifth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I thought you marked uh, Uber, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I think that's where Instacart clearly, uh, the valuation is a yep. lot more reasonable now. Uh, I can see the IPO pricing maybe revised upward to around 10 to 12 billion. Based on the initial pricing, it's more eight to nine billion. I can see it being revised slightly higher because of that ad revenue. And if they can convince uh, investors at the roadshow that the top line will reaccelerate, because right now, as I said, it's flat order growth. That's not good news when you're, uh, you know, a growth story. So clearly that top line acceleration is key, but the unit economics, as I said, for Instacart look a lot healthier than all the other marketplaces, mm -hmm. including DoorDash and Uber. I'll tell you what, Paul, I'd rather get into IPOs in this climate than uh, during the, you know, the Lyft and Rivian, the heady days of right. massive valuations, because now we're also pessimistic about everything, right? Yep. Now you have Mandeep coming on going, eh, the top line's not going to grow <laughs> very much. They're going to have to cut what they are actually worth by like four times. And back then it was it like, who knows? The sky's the <laughs> limit, you know? So at least now you can get in without that irrational exuberance. I'd rather be a momentum investor than a value investor any day of the week because I don't have to be right on the names. I just have to jump on the mo. Here, I gotta, I gotta pick the name right. I gotta pick the valuation right. I gotta be all kinds of right. So, is this the beginning, Mandeep? I mean, this is gonna be a down round, to put it in the parlance yeah. of, of uh, private equity and venture for all capital. of them, right? For Arm, for Instacart, yep. for. So, does this open up? I kind of feel like there's a stigma. There is a stigma to not doing down rounds, but now we're gonna have a couple notable names doing down rounds in the public market. Do you think that's gonna have an influence on you know, the other companies to maybe consider IPOs? There will be, and look, uh, you're not gonna see a lot more delivery companies come to the right. scene now. Now the market is consolidating. That's good news for the ones point. that are left over. So previously you had GoPuff and you know every <laughs> new uh, uh, company coming to the scene trying to figure out delivery. Well, those days are over. I think VCs are quite cautious about investing in this space altogether. And I feel once you have consolidation, which is what we are seeing with DoorDash, Uber, and to an extent Instacart, that probably will, good for the, uh, will be good for the unit economics of these uh, companies. Arm said to consider, here's a Bloomberg story, Arm said to consider raising IPO price range. How about that? That's like the old days. Yeah, but that's because they've already brought it down by so yeah. much, you know? They had their own owner buy a stake in them that it essentially already owned for far more than what they're going public for I now. Know. So is this, I mean, ARM is this week, right? Like maybe yeah. a, a Tuesday pricing, yeah. Tuesday night for Wednesday trade. Yep. That'd be really interesting to see how that trades. Uh, Silicon Valley in, in general, is it still all AI? 
It, right now, it's all about generative AI. This year is the year of generative AI. You can lump in chatbots as well, and just overall large language models, foundational models, which is why the Apple event, if they don't talk about generative AI at this event, they clearly have a problem, because really? that's what everyone yeah. is uh, hoping for, that Apple, $3 trillion company, hasn't mentioned generative AI even once in is their that right? call. Yes. What's the, why is that 30 seconds? Well, because uh, they probably haven't built their uh, foundational model yet, and they are focused on privacy. When you think about large language models, it's built on big data sets. Apple is a company that has always been focused on privacy, and that is what makes them hard to build their own large language model like a ChatGPT or All right, we're going to have you in again on this one, because, I mean, this kind of could be existential for Apple if they don't, at least in the minds of investors. Uh, dude, this yeah, morning, yeah. Gina Martin-Adams on Surveillance was talking about how important generative AI is for a brand like Hostess. <laughs> exactly. If, so it's, if it somehow, matters to a Twinkie maker. That's what yeah. I say. When you hear Tom Keen mention Twinkie and AI in the same sentence, yeah. you know something's up. All right, Mandeep, thanks so much for joining us. Mandeep Singh, he's a senior analyst. He runs all of our technology research. We have tech analysts literally all over the globe, Europe, North America, and of course, Asia. Uh, and Mandeep kind of runs that business for us, and we appreciate that. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We have Rick Caruso with us. He's the founder and executive chairman of Caruso, starting out life uh, as a lawyer and then uh, transitioned to Caruso Affiliated Holdings, and they own, uh, among other things, um, The Grove, which was ranked number two on Fortune's list of the 10 highest sales generating shopping centers across the country. I've always been a fan of the mall. You haven't? Yeah. I love the Westchester but, up in White Plains, you're for example. You're not a Jersey person, though. Jersey, we, do, we do malls in New Jersey. Yeah, I'm from the great state of Ohio. Of course. We have traditionally had uh, big malls. At least okay. they, they started, I think, when I was a kid, so I, I kind of grew up with them. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was like yeah. the story of, of my middle school. Um, uh, Rick, talk to us about the current state of commercial real estate, because it, it had been, um, you know, kind of the, one of the big fears, I would say, of 2023, but it seems to be fading a bit as a fear. Well, thank you. I think on the retail side, listen, we do outdoor malls. Yep. So all of our properties are not covered. I think that's a very different sector. Uh, but what we're seeing on our properties, consumer is still strong. Consumer spending is still up. Our growth on our properties is double digit in terms of attendance. And our sales per square foot is up. So we're having a very good year. My, my fear is that with inflation, with rising interest costs, I don't know how long that lasts, but right, right now we're running at a, at a really good pace. What's the occupancy of your malls in general today, maybe relative to pre-pandemic? -pre we're, we're very unique. So I'm gonna tell you this and you won't believe it, but we run at 100% with a waiting really? list. But our properties are incredibly productive. We have three in the top 10 in the United States. Um, it's, we're, we're a different business. Yeah. You know, it's a very different it's, it's, it's not strip malls. Well, what's the term that you no, use No, it's for? like uh, Ridge Hill we have up in See, Westchester. Polaris in Columbus is like okay. this. What What do you think They're differentiates? Like downtown centers. Yeah. They're like downtown yeah. centers. Okay. So we're but what building... makes it different than in a covered mall? 
because we're creating an environment. Listen, a covered mall is an artificial atmosphere that you're asking somebody to go into. Right. And people always say- Now, we have a good one over in New Jersey, the mall of, what's it called? The Dream Mall or whatever? Well, you and I have never been there, so (laughs) how can we say it's good? That that went through a lot of problems. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) But I think the difference is we're creating an environment for people to come and enjoy themselves, relax, have fun, create an environment. Very, very different. We have dwell time. We want people to stay. We want people to just relax. And and people respond to it. You know, we're tapping into the consumer experience, which I think is all important. They'll go without even knowing, without even thinking, we're going to a mall. They'll go because they want to visit a restaurant or they'll even drive through occasionally. We're not designing it with the idea that we want people to shop. We're designing it with the idea that we want people to enjoy themselves. And then they're going to go shop because they're there. Why do you think, though, the Grove is so popular? I mean, where, something where, that, is that, where is the Grove? In Los Angeles. In yeah. Los Angeles, yeah. okay. It's, it's popular because it just it makes people feel better. It sounds corny, <laughs> but it enriches your life, and you can go there and hang out and have a cup of coffee and read the paper and really not spend a dime, or you can go there and spend the day and spend a lot of money. But it, it, it's the trees, it's the fountain, it's the lawn, it's the flowers, it's everything, and the shopping is incidental to it, and the restaurants and it's curated with the best retailers and restaurants in the business. Are you adding new malls? Are you taking over existing malls? How, where are some of your growth we've got We've got a pipeline of new projects that we're doing, all in the format of outdoor centers, and um, and we're going strong with it. Are you putting them all in the Austin, Texas of the world, the Nashvilles, no. and where? where? No, we're, we're, we're growing in uh, Southern California, and we're gonna continue to do that. Now listen, we're looking in Florida, and we're looking at other areas of the country. So you're country. primarily in Southern California? Yeah. Now. Gotcha, okay. Yeah. So I mean, so give us a sense of how Southern California is. You got st- strikes all across Los yeah. Angeles and all that type of thing. Give us a sense of just Southern California in general, because we have someone here at Bloomberg in our editorial who's very bullish on California. Yeah, right? Matt Winkler. The guy who founded Bloomberg oh, News. Right. Yeah. yeah. He founded Bloomberg News, and he's written a number of uh, editorials extolling the, the virtues of not only Los Angeles, but even the strength of the California economy, essentially. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I think the California economy, listen, is strong. It's a massive economy, right, globally. But the reality is we have enormous challenges in California. I have a viewer writing in for a question, uh, 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 with a question for Rick. Um, and essentially, it comes down to the same thing. It's about the economy. Um, viewer, listener, uh, we have, you know, we're on radio, but we're also streaming on YouTube. Yep. Um, he asked, does, do you anticipate hiring to slow on your properties as the economy slows or as inflation remains higher uh, or as the consumer weakens? Are you looking uh, forward with concern to any of those things? Well, I, I'm concerned about the consumer weakening. The consumer has to weaken, right? I mean, you've got rising interest rate and you still have inflation and prices are high and savings are getting lower and the default rates on credit cards are coming up, which mm-hmm. we've seen that data. Uh, so it has to happen. It's just a question of time. But I think all of us have to reorganize our companies around the fact that we've got a higher tenure and it's probably going to remain high for a while. And uh, it's chewing into free cash flow of every company. And so we have to be smarter about how we spend our money, which may mean slowing our hiring and slowing growth and slowing CapEx. I mean, it's going to have an impact, which I worry about. Theft is something that I've yeah. heard more from re- retailers' earnings calls, and they call it shrink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's just been extraordinary, and it looks organized. It's I, insane. So can you give us a sense, kind of from your perspective, what this means for the industry? Well, here's a problem in, in Los Angeles County. We have a no-bail system, so you can get arrested, and you're out within an hour. Okay. Even if it's a <laughs> felony. 
If you steal under $950, plus or minus, it's a misdemeanor. And uh, these theft rings are organized. I mean, it's organized crime, and they're mobs. And we've got to change the rules, and we've got to get elected officials that actually have some backbone and say, we're not going to allow this to happen anymore, and let's hold criminals accountable. They need to be incarcerated if they're a ring and they're repeat offenders. And then, of course, we've got to give people a chance for you know, rebuild their lives and whatnot. But what's happening in Southern California right now with the smash and grabs or in San Francisco, you can't tolerate that in business. Do you, I mean... And it's killing small business, by the way. Yeah, big business. If you you own, you know, know, essentially an outdoor shopping community like the Grove, do you bring in an extra, you know, police force, auxiliary cops? Do you try and, um, you know get the employees to do something about it? I mean, how do you, how do you fight well, we this? Don't want, we don't want employees to engage, but what we do on all of our properties, we have armed security and we have extensive camera systems. We have equipment that can actually identify people. And so we're very sophisticated on our properties. But the problem is 90% of the businesses in LA are small businesses. They can't afford to do that. Yep. And they get one smash and grab, that could be their monthly profit. So. What's happening, I think, in Southern California, L.A., is the responsibility to keep people safe is getting pushed to the private sector because we have a shortage of cops and we have a shortage of, again, elected officials, I think, that are actually dedicated to making sure that our communities are safe. And we're picking that up, and that's not good business. We're smart for the community long term. Is that one of the biggest challenges for Southern California in general, do you think? I think so. I think it's a big challenge for California in general. Yeah. You and know, for I, New York, right? Yeah. Even though we, we have an ex-cop here in office, and I think a lot of people expected the crime to change on the day he came in, and it hasn't. Yeah. And yep. you have a big police force, which we don't have in L.A. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you have almost five times as many cops as we do in Los Angeles. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Very interesting stuff there. Uh, Rick Russo, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here today. Really fascinating discussion. We ought to do we ought to do the show from the Grove. We should do that. You know? Let's go. Let's go. Get man. out get out to the West Coast yep. and uh, really dive into the economics and businesses of California. I think we can do that. We can get some support. I would like to do that. We'd All love right. to have you. All right, Rick. Thanks so much for joining thanks. us. Rick Caruso is a founder and executive chairman of Caruso talking about the, the retail business and the retail business on the uh, outdoor malls, if you will. Uh, quite vibrant relative to kind of what you hear from other parts of some of the uh, retail but retail in general has been good the consumer has been been good the question now is just kind of going forward with the higher rates and all that type of thing from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of ai adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Big take story right down Matt's alley here. 
Uh, Monica Raymond joins us. Um, she's the auto industry disruption reporter. How about that with Bloomberg News? She's got this story out there entitled Germany frets Volkswagen is heading down the wrong or down the road to nowhere. Yeah. So, uh, Monica, I, thanks so much for joining us uh, via Zoom here. What's kind of the thesis, thesis of your story? I thought v, Volkswagen's going all in EV. Oh, Definitely. Um, I wouldn't say that they're not uh, focused on their EV strategy, but really what the concern is, is that um, Volkswagen is sort of atrophying um, market share in China when it comes to EVs, when uh. it comes to competing with Tesla, when it comes to competing with BYD. And um, basically the, the company needs to sort of catch up and, and redo their strategy and figure out how to uh, deliver to the Chinese market what the Chinese have come to expect. Um, the, it's a unique situation because basically during the pandemic, when everyone was sort of uh, triaging their own issues back at home, um, China really went all in with EVs, with their infrastructure, with supporting their um, their startups there. And the scene completely changed. They made leaps and bounds when it came to software technology, when it came to infotainment, when it came to in-car experiences. And um, now Volkswagen and other like leg- see car makers are looking at the market and realizing you know the Chinese are doing it really really well when it comes to when it comes to EVs and they have to sort of find a way to catch up and the bigger picture is that this is a big concern for Germany um, because the auto industry plays such a huge role um, in the macro environment and the economy and um, you know if Volkswagen fails to get this right it's going to have an impact on you know, on their domestic situation, on the domestic I mean, economy. I think it's an amazing story on so many levels, Monica. Um, the first thing that I that I was wondering about is, did Dees, Herbert Dees leave Volkswagen in this situation? Or is Bluma, you know, not executing on the Dees strategy well enough? Um, then I also thought about, you know, if this is a security issue for Germany, as well as an economic issue, how much control does the state feel like it can take over this behemoth? Because if things go wrong, it's not just for the Porsche Peach family uh, a problem. It's a problem for the entire uh, country and economy. So I think there's so many different threads that are fascinating. Um, what happened to the tens of billions of dollars that Deese was investing in becoming an EV maker, becoming a software company. I remember headlines out from Ralvald that were like $30 billion or $50 billion. Are they spending that money? Is it getting them anywhere? Yeah, absolutely. Great questions all around. Um, on the investment question, sorry, I just thought still... the, the story moved me. Honestly, <laughs> I, I really, really think it's fantastic. I recommend to our listeners and viewers to check it out. I just it blew me away this morning. So I, I should have read it last night. I wouldn't have been able to sleep if I did. All right. So the money. <laughs> right. So on the money part, um, no. And the investment is money is still there. Volkswagen is in, investing, I think, total over the next five years, something like 180 billion. And two thirds of that is going to EVs. Don't quote me on that. I have to I have the numbers are a bit fuzzy in my head. It's a lot. But they're still it's it's a lot. Yeah. Um, and you're absolutely right. Dees was in my mind and in my assessment, um, totally the innovator. He had the long-term vision for where the where the car industry was going and where it needed to go, where Volkswagen needed to go if it really wanted to compete with Tesla, um, and you know eventually the the Chinese. And and one of his big um, you know one of his big strategic um, plans or or moves was this idea of vertical integration. We got to get control of the battery supply chain, and that was you know why he really went all in with PowerCo, creating their own 
battery company. He thought, you know, we have to go in all, all in on software. We have to create our own software unit. We have to control that as well in order to control the profit pools that subsequently come from in-car entertainment. And so he was all about sort of focusing on what Volkswagen could do on its own, making Volkswagen into sort of, sort of more of a tech company as, you know, the, the car becomes more of a um, sort of a living room on wheels or sort of more like a mobile phone on wheels that people's uh, expectations, customer expectations have sort of moved in the direction of smartphone apps and uh, services, and you needed to be able to offer that in car. And so his str strategy was, well, let's do it on our own so we can control more of the more of the profit pools. And um, that maybe turned out to be sort of the Achilles heel um, of Deese, in addition to his his management style. But there, I would say there's a big difference. There's a difference between Deese and Bluma in that Deese, you're right, Deese did bring a lot of these innovative um, projects into the company and Bluma is now sort of carrying those forward and bringing those along. Um, and I would say, you know, Bluma has, has totally, um, Oliver Bluma, the new CEO, who is also currently the, the CEO of Porsche, um, he is really um, he's he's going all in with the battery strategy. He's still supporting Carriad, the the software unit, and saying we're still gonna, you know, back Carriad's efforts 100% to to create the premium platform for the Audi and Porsche vehicles, for the E-Macan, for the Q Q6 uh, e-tron, um, and then you know using the the company's resources to to you know broaden their their offering for electric electric vehicles i feel like they're um, just they're they're slow um to keep to catch up and they can't really knock the ball out of the park when it comes to um you know range they don't do as well as gm has 450 miles of range in their ev pickup trucks now they have gigantic batteries to support that 210 kilowatt packs but still they have it right and um it doesn't seem like uh Porsche should only have one EV model out at this stage in the game. Why don't they already have an Emacon? Why don't they already have an E version of the 911? Like what is taking them so long? Yeah, it's definitely the software issue. Um, so, so by creating, you know, by having a legacy car maker that really knows German engine engineering really well, to have them pivot and suddenly start doing software, it's a completely different process. It's a completely different ball game. It's a completely different sport. And they had to sort of learn from zero how to do it, how the processes work, how you develop software. And that led to, you know, delays when it came to um, the the launch of um, of, of of the platform that the the Emacon is going to be based on, it was supposed to be out, I think, about two years ago already, and and that was that was one of the thing. Audi, Audi and Porsche, these these models that are coming out for Audi and Porsche, um, these electric models, the models that are going to come from between 2024 and 2028 are supposed to make up about 50% of Volkswagen revenues in that time period. So, they're you know if they don't That's get amazing, that premium platform they have like out, 11 or 12 brands, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, Audi and Porsche are really the, you know, the big money makers. I mean, Porsche is no longer technically a cash cow since the IPO. They're no longer sharing their profits with Volkswagen. But for Audi, it's really key. It's really critical that they get this this platform, this uh, um, premium platform from Carriot, um out to build their 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 model lineup. 
um, and they haven't been able to do that because of the delays. Basically, it was it was it was a struggle for Carriot for the software unit um, because they've they had to do one one software platform for the Volkswagen, this other premium platform for for Audi and Porsche, and then they also had this SSP platform, this scalable unified platform for all the brands. That's sort of the long time vision that Dees had, um, and that's you know sort of up in the air at this point about if and when right. that's that's going to come to fruition. Hey, Monica, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting some of your time. As uh, Matt mentioned, a fantastic uh, uh, piece of work there. Monica Raymond, Auto's Industry Disruption Reporter for Bloomberg uh, News, out with a big take story today on the Bloomberg uh, Terminal entitled Germany Frets. Volkswagen is heading down the road to nowhere. So check that out on the terminal or uh, Bloomberg.com slash big take. Those are really deeply reported stories. Uh, great stuff. Highly recommended. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. There are old skydivers and bold skydivers, but there are no old bold skydivers. That's a good one. Uh, I guess you can apply that to investing, because certainly our next guest does that very well. Jessica Rabe joins us. She's a founder of Data Trek Research. We love the folks at Data Trek. Lots of really smart research comes out of there. Now, you said Rabe, and I would think it's Raba. I went Rabe. Let's hear Jessica. Let's hear from what say you? Jessica. Uh, Ray, you are correct. Boom. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I'm I'm very excited to be on. All right, Jessica, I, I like how you kind of bring together the skydiving thing, which, by the way, we have to talk about that at some point. Who does that uh, willingly and investing? So how do you bring the two together? Sure. Yeah. So to me, skydiving is an amplified version of life and even investing in that it's a masterclass in risk management. So like you said at, at, at the top, the saying there in skydiving is a very common one. There are old skydivers and bold skydivers, but there are no old bold skydivers. So no matter anyone's experience, both skydiving and investing are process-driven disciplines with small margins for error. For, uh, for error. So ultimately it helps, helps teach you how to confront natural human fear and overcome it by sticking to a process staying present and uh it's very important to remain calm in high pressure pressure situations all right I, so, so I, I have to say that i love now you skydiving but i'm not licensed so i still have to get strapped to a big man's back or to his chest um unlike jessica How many because times have you jumped out of a plane? I, i've gone seven times wow and uh jessica wow. i'm guessing you've done more uh, yes, I'm still a baby in the sport, but I've done 114 uh, solo skydives at this point. Wow. And do you pack your own chute, or how does that all work, I'm wondering? Yep, that's part of uh, getting licensed. You have to know how to how to pack pack your own parachute. And, and quite, quite frankly, you want to. You want to know your own equipment, and uh, you want to know how to pack, because then it, you're, uh, the way that your canopy opens uh, is more reliable. So and, I was... and you trust yourself. I was struck. I read your note um, as soon as I saw it hit my inbox, and I thought it was really cool the parallels between investing and skydiving that I'd never thought of. Um, the only difference for me, and probably for most people listening, in terms of retail investing, is I don't pack my own chute in the markets, right? I don't even have the ability to know how to do that. I need to leave it to people like you and Nick to pack my chute for me because I just don't have the time to do the research, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah, sure, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, so there's there's so many parallels uh, between investing in skydiving um, for and for really all levels of experience. So, you know, one of those is just sticking to a, a process. There are fundamentals in skydiving that, that keep you safe, whether it be checking your gear, remaining altitude aware, of, or knowing how to fly in, uh, and, and land in different conditions. So you can do most of a skydive right, but make one wrong move in the last 200 feet or so and face serious consequences. The same is uh, when it comes to investing, stray from core guidelines, from idea generation to taking profits or losses, and any type of investor from a novice to a 20-year year veteran can, can pay the price. All right, so I like this one, anticipate other participants. So I guess in skydiving, you gotta be have that situational awareness to know what's around you, but I guess that kind of makes sense in investing as well. Oh yeah, so I can do everything right on a jump, um, but get hurt by another skydiver, whether that be colliding under freefall or under canopy. So you really have to prepare not just um, for yourself, but you have to anticipate other people. Um, it's it's just like riding a motorcycle, which I also do. You constantly have to have your head on a swivel, and much that's much of investing too is ant anticipating not just what you're going to do, but what other market participants are going to do, especially um, when it comes to how how they respond bond during crises that's that's how a lot of volatility um is is created is by other market participants and, and how they respond under pressure yeah i would argue in motorcycling uh especially i mean motorcycling on the highway or in in you know public roads paying attention to what other people are doing is far more important than paying attention to you know i i'm not going to make many mistakes the motorcycle stays up by itself as long as you know i'm putting in the right inputs so the most important thing is uh watch out for that car or you're truck. not one of those crazy people on the garden state parkway that zoom in and out of cars doing like 100 120 miles an hour i try no. not to Jessica, oh yo I mean, jessica's laughing over there I, that's like a bold skydiver right those people don't last very yeah, long yeah that's yeah you don't want to you don't want to be too bold um and that's why i mean it's a motorcycle riding too is a perfect example uh, whether it be skydiving or motorcycle riding or investing is you just you have to plan for adverse events there are certain forces out of our control whether it be weather or other skydivers and skydiving or economic and geopolitical shocks and investing the best we can do is stay aware of the risks and plan for them. I see skydivers um, with thousands of jumps still practicing their emergency uh, procedures in the plane right up to altitude. So that way, uh, muscle memory kicks in should they need to to uh, cut away their main parachute and deploy their, their reserve parachute in the event of an equipment malfunction. Uh, and that's the same with investing. Uh, People know at, at DataTrack, we have a longstanding recommendation to add risk exposure when the VIX gets to 28, 36, and, and 44, because these are one, two, and three standard deviations above the long run mean, um, and therefore signal excessive investor fear. So yeah, investing, skydiving, motorcycle riding, you always have to have to be on your toes and uh, and be ready for, for anything. All right, so I'm, I'm looking at some of the photographs you've attached to your note here, and they're making my stomach literally queasy as, as I look at them. What's the highest altitude that you've done a jump from? Uh, so I jump at Skydive Sussex, and the nice thing about that drop zone is they go all the way up to 14,500 feet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that you hanging off like a helicopter or a plane or something like that? Yep. I, uh, yeah, I did my first uh, few helicopter jumps a few weekends ago, so that, that was certainly wow. very, very fun. 
That is crazy. Because the jumping out of a helicopter is different than a plane. With a plane, you have all the relative wind coming at you. With a helicopter, you jump into dead air. Jesus. That sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, this, I mean, I was wondering if, if you make these parallels. Um, you know, with skydiving, you want to be pretty conservative. And in investing, you, you do have a little bit of a risk tolerance, right? So... Um, how do you limit yourself uh, or how do you stop yourself from just buying 10 year treasuries right now? <laughs> yeah, um, I would say that you have to, in both skydiving and investing, you have to assess your abilities honestly. So in skydiving, it's very important to know your skill level and also stay within your personal risk tolerance. So that means only jumping in winds or, 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 or joining group formation skydives that you believe uh, that you're confident enough to um, be able to land safely or also confident in others' abilities that, that you can execu execute the skydiving plan, plan safely. There's a, there's a saying in skydiving, it's better to be on the ground wishing you're in the sky than be in the sky wishing you're on the ground. <laughs> and that's a big part of, uh, part of the job for investors or financial advisors is just doing what will keep your clients in the game by knowing uh, your own limits or your client's limits. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, and vir virtual currencies are, are a great example that many many people learned that hard lesson over the past two years. Hmm. So virtual currencies. <laughs> so what's the like what's the next step for you in terms of skydiving? Uh there's there's so many disciplines in the sport so there's just always ways to constantly um to constantly improve and uh and and learn something new so yeah people a lot of people wonder they think they they think skydiving's crazy you know what what's the appeal and i'd say there there are three main appeals to skydiving at, at least for myself um number one i like pastimes that push limits and require mental focus um so skydiving obviously fits that description as does motorcycle riding as we discussed um the other thing about skydiving is it's a really wonderful diverse and welcoming community i have friends in the sport um from all walks of life one's right. a famous rapper the the helicopter jump that um that you referenced i did my first helicopter jump with uh, the rapper red man so that was super fun um, other people are yeah, other people are computer coders, um, to right. helicopter pilots. I've met a bunch of cool women in the sport, and we all connect around a, a common passion. All right. Well, um, I, and thirdly, it just it allows me to be present and take a fun break from the the grind of Wall Street <laughs> as much as I love it. So, all right. In portfolio construction terms, I'd say it's my yep. uncorrelated asset with high returns on investment. Very nice. I'll let, I'll let you go with that, Jessica Rabe, founder, Data Track Research. Appreciate getting some of your time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk coal, Matt. We talk a lot about, e um, you know, eco kind of green energy. We don't talk a lot about coal. Uh, it's got to be tough to be in the coal business in a world that's going green, but we have found someone who does that very well, Randall Atkins. He's the CEO of Ramanco, or Ramico? R Ramico Resources, trades on the NASDAQ, M-E-T-C. I get it. I get the ticker, Met Coal. Um, he joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Of course, the highlight of his career, obviously, graduated of, of the Duke University, but I finally found somebody who did it before I did. 
I mean, so not, you know, just land it there. Randall, I'm looking at your background. You, it's not like you're one of these people that came up in the coal business your entire life. A lot of banking, a lot of investments, a lot of finance. Why did you get into the coal business? Got into the coal business because it was sort of a distressed business. It was a play that, uh, frankly, we stepped back even five years ago. Most of the public companies were all in bankruptcy. Yep. So if you could start one from scratch, kind of reverse engineer it correctly uh, with little debt and sort of maximize the asset quality, um, you know, we have proven that uh, you can make a very good go in this business. Uh, and as our expression is, we view coal in a manner which coal is too valuable to burn. So <laughs> okay. we, uh, we approach it a little differently than most. So um, how do you address what I assume must be a shrinking market? Is it um, in this country? Do we use less and less coal every year? Um, split the market into two different pots. One is thermal coal, and that answer to your question is yes. It's probably a declining market. Met coal, which is what we focus on, is basically a precursor to make steel. So that business is not declining, and indeed internationally, where we probably place upwards of two-thirds of our market, uh, is growing. Um, it, obviously, the Asian market is the principal growth factor. So, okay, so two-thirds of your business is outside the U.S.? Correct. Okay. Um, so talk to us about just the competitive landscape. I can't even think of other coal companies out there. Um, who, who else is out there that you compete with? Like, who is the competitive marketplace? Is it other BHP U.S.? Billiton? Yeah, I guess, yeah. So who do you, what's the competitive we landscape? We wouldn't compete so much in the, in the Australian market, which has pretty much got a lock on a lot of the Asians just because of the proximity of logistics. But domestically, we would compete with companies like Alpha, Arch, to a lesser extent, okay. Peabody, Warrior. Those would be some of the names. So Met Coal, Coking Coal, um, still desperately needed to create uh, to produce all the steel that we need what does the growth in that industry look like the growth in that industry is basically i always say met coal is a proxy for steel steel is a proxy for gdp so if you look at basically general economic trends whether it's in the u.s or overseas it pretty well ties to met coal ties to the growth in the general econo economic situation of most of the countries all right, so I'm looking at um, you know your financials here on the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal. I got top line going kind of mid single digits, uh, EBITDA margins mid mid twenties, um, free cash flow positive. Mm -hmm. What's the growth driver for your business? Do you acquire additional mines? Do you develop further what you've got? How do you grow your your business? Sure. Well, we're actually the only domestic coal company that's projecting to double in size. From where we sit right now so we have decided to grow organically without buying existing mines we basically have taken properties where we in essence buy the reserve and develop that plant it and then market it from there so we will jump from about two and a half million tons last year to about three and a half million tons of production this year ultimately to about six six to seven million tons what do you I mean, I look at the stock price and I wonder what happened two years ago. You know, all of a sudden it just goes boom um, on, on the rise at the uh, August, September 2021 part of the chart. What happened there? Basically, after that, you had sort of an economically decline. Um, you had after effects of COVID. You had a different market situation. Basically, in the August and September periods is when you find almost 100% of the domestic sales occur in the US. 
So that was a tough period in domestic sales. A lot of the coal companies dropped in that same time period. No, but you jumped. I'm looking. So 2021, uh, your stock went from 250 uh, to, I'm going to say, 12 mm-hmm. at the end of the year. Right. Um, it, it, it was the end of the pandemic, which is why I think it's so interesting. Usually you see these stock moves right around 2020, um, depending on what the company is. But you uh, climbed high into 2021, 2022, and now you're holding it about $8. Right. Our jump was primarily based on a market recognition that we had gone from being sort of a small-time producer into becoming into the ranks of a larger producer. When we get to the six to seven million ton size, we will be almost an equal size in terms of the Met coal production with most of the major coal companies, which frankly still have got a predominant thermal mix. And that's frankly the drag on most coal stocks is that there's not a market differentiation between thermal and Met. So what's the future of coal in this country, this energy you know, I mean, is there always going to be a place for coal or it just seems like, you know, if you talk to some of the more cleaner energy folks, they would like to see that go to zero. Yeah. So I have been a proponent for about 10 years that, as I said, there's a higher and better use for coal. Uh, coal is too valuable to burn. I go back to really 100 years ago when coal was used for a variety of things that had more of a chemical nature. So we have been working with the Department of Energy and some of the national labs in creating new uses for coal, where you can convert it into things like synthetic graphite, graphenes, carbon fibers. Uh, and frankly, that took us into the rare earth business, where, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't know the difference between rare, co- rare coins and rare earth. Mm-hmm. But we have found that connected to coal seams. So the future of coal, I see, is having three legs to the stool. One for thermal production for combustion, one for steel production, and the third leg of the stool will be higher tech uses for alternative carbon products. What are the rare earths that you're finding and how are you doing it getting them out? We have found a spectrum of about 14 different rare earths and frankly 30% of what we found are concentrated in the heavier magnetic rare earths which are frankly the more valuable ones. Rare earths are measured in parts per million, uh, so it's you know it's unlike the bulk coal business. Yep. It's it's more like you're you're looking for diamonds almost, and uh, it's more of an industrial chemical business than it's a mining business because once you find it, that's only half the battle. The trick is to separate the rare earths right. and you know and get them processed in a way that they then become commercially usable. Hey, Randall, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming in here. We don't talk about coal that often, so it's a fascinating discussion. Randall Atkins, he's the CEO of Romanco Resource, Romanco Resources, thank you. Uh, symbol, M-E-T-C. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
J.M. Smucker agreed to acquire Twinkies maker Hostess Brands for about $5.6 billion, furthering a growing consolidation trend among the companies that stock the shelf-stable aisles at the heart of supermarkets. Do we have an expert on this business? We absolutely do. Diana Rosetto-Pena, she's an equity research analyst, follow all the consumer space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Diana, you were like one of our first BI analysts. You're like an original original. You're aging me. Absolutely. I mean, you're there from just the get-go, uh, and she's just become one of the top analysts out there covering the consumer space. Diana, what do you make of, of this deal, Smuckers buying Hostess? What's going on here strategically? Yeah, well, strategically uh, for Smucker, this will be a more more of a mixed um, deal for Smucker in terms of on the sales um, side, it's definitely positive. It's it's a company that is growing in the mid single digits compared to consumer foods, the consumer foods uh, segment for Smucker, which is growing in the low single digits. So definitely on the sell side, it's going to be a positive. Now, if you go down the P&L, that's probably uh, going to be a little bit more complicated. Why is that? Because um, EBITDA, margins are not necessarily going to be as 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 uh, positive as the company is stating in our view um, the company the company's call this morning said that they uh, hostess had a 23% EBITDA margin which is going to probably be about uh, the same as the consumer food segment in for the company going forward so we don't necessarily see a lot of uh, accretion on that end I feel like there's a there's room for real improvement on execution of hostess product sales you know I um, we have interviewed the CEO hostess a couple times and as a result I always go out and look for their products and stores and I see that they do have like um, sometimes separate areas or specific displays but the products aren't stocked very well and there's just not enough attention drawn to them in the in the in the points of purchase couldn't they improve that i think that is something that attracted smucker they it seems that hostess has been increasing innovation and uh, points of of sale as as you mentioned and i think they're probably going to benefit from the supply chain leverage that smucker has um and it's also in terms of smucker it will give them a little bit more exposure on the on the uh, convenience side which is about 40% of Hostess uh, sales. So I'm a big fan of the Hostess brands, but there's some people out there that maybe even during the pandemic, I don't know, they, maybe they went to more of those, you know, ringdings and host, all that kind of good stuff that we all love. But maybe now they're coming back and going back to more healthier food. What, what are the trends you're seeing out there? So basically, it's uh, consumers in the United States. They say they want one thing and they actually do another. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, you're right. People want to be healthier. And definitely the pandemic was a big catalyst for people. Um, people going and purchase more of the uh, indulgence snacks. Um, I think there's still a little bit of growth on that aspect. People seem to be uh, a little bit more permissible in the indulgence side. Um, and I think that is probably going to uh, fuel growth going forward. I mean, Twinkies, obviously. Boom. And then the cupcakes. I like, I like the orange ones, but they have the chocolate and... Uh, the Ding Dongs are classic. A, a classic. The Ho-Hos, yep. can't forget about those. 
I have always been a fan of the Chocodile. Really? That's which is a Twinkie essentially dipped in chocolate. Um, wow, I've cool. never really liked the Snowballs. No. But they're the there. The Zingers. Um, and then, I mean, they're just like classic brands. <laughs> I feel like instead of just selling them at, you know, the 7-Eleven or the Dwayne Reed, they should be sold in, you know, these trendy like urban outfitters should sell these things right because but you can't fit on on their clothes though so that would be a little bit of lack of synergy why is james smucker stock down six percent today well obviously it has as as you know there's also the acquire curse uh playing into that but like i said i think it's more of uh investors Try, I don't want to say not believing, but being a little bit wary about the bottom line for uh, this acquisition and how accretive it's going to be on the EBITDA margin. Are we are we seeing more consolidation in the, I don't know, the grocery space? If so, why or what, what's happening out there? Well, we actually, I mean, I have been uh, fairly active in terms of writing because uh, Campbell Soup a few weeks ago bought Sovos. So ah, that that's is right. That's right. Yeah. So that is definitely it seems that acquisitions seem to be uh, ramping up in the second half of the year. Uh, it, it really is in terms of uh, it, it, it's not unusual. Uh, I think we're going back to patterns compared to before the pandemic that all of these big companies are looking for growth and they're paying a pretty high price for it. How can Hostess, I mean, go into bankruptcy, not just once, but twice? Was that just, I mean, who can sell sell Twinkies? What happened? I mean, it was maybe before your time, but was it just, again, is Matt suggesting maybe just some bad management there? Yeah, it was a combination of uh, bad management. And at the, and at the same time, um, you know, it, it was lack of innovation. Uh, the the brands were falling out of flavor. And I think, uh, you know, now with more innovation and with the strong supply chain leverage, I think that they're probably going to be uh, expanding into that. Do you, do you expect more M&A going forward in this space? I, I think so. I'm a little worried about the premiums that we're seeing and the leverage expansion obviously uh smucker it's uh their balance sheet is going that net leverage is going to be 4.4 after 4.4 times that seems high after yes that's fine for my industry the media industry because we grow our ebitda 15 to 20 percent you guys don't grow your ebitda that fast exactly and uh usually we should be able to see uh leverage in the three times but now when we're looking at deals that are expanding into four times it, it makes people a little nervous I wonder what the what are the other brands out there that are on the block like do we know hostess was on the block do we know or was this a surprise? Well, apparently, according to Smucker Management, the acquisition was a surprise. Um, they're, they themselves actually divested some of the food brands for pet. Uh, so divestitors seem to be also be on the block. Uh, Smucker's and- has coffee, right? They, yes. they make Dunkin' uh, coffee for sale. They have Folgers. Folgers yeah. um, they obviously do Jif peanut butter and the, and the jellies. And, and you're and- a Jif guy. I, I love Jif. I will eat Jif peanut butter straight Jif out of the jar in a spoon. I'm a Jif. Wow. Yes. Jif. It's so you delicious. You break the tie. Okay. And, and crunchy. Yes. But Smucker's also does Meow Mix and Milk Bone, right? Are they getting out of that, the pet food business? Yes, they are, actually. Yeah. They're concentrating on the pet snacks uh, category, which is... Pepperoni? Another, uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> yes, uh, milk bone. So, yeah. um, but that is, I think, one of the arguments against the deal is that is this going to be a big heart uh, pet brand uh, 2.0? Back in 2015, the company uh, acquired this uh, company, Pig, uh, Big Heart Brands, for four, five point something billion dollars. Leverage was also four, four times uh, EBITDA. So it, it, and now they're divesting a lot of brands of it. So, you know, people are concerned about that. What's, what's your thoughts on Chewy? We've got about 20, 20 seconds. <laughs> Chewy, it, they're growing uh, on their net sales uh, per active consumers and active consumers seems to be a pain point for them so far. All right, good stuff. Uh, a reader just kind of writes in, Peter Pan peanut butter, is where it's at. That's not the case. That's not a strong I mean, case. Well, you know what? I don't actually, I had spent a long time. I'll go, I'm gonna go out right now because I'm leaving. Okay. And I'm gonna go get a, a, a jar we have smuckers. of, of Peter Pan. Just I'll go over to, to, to the Dwayne Reed and pick one up and see how it goes. Right, we'll but I think Jif is still the reigning champ. All right, Diana Rosetta Pena, equity research analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, breaking down this deal. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about ad tech digital advertising, all that fun stuff, the part of the advertising pie that continues to put up some really solid numbers. And you think about the digital advertising, the you know, the Facebooks, the Googles, I use the old school war, uh, words, uh, not meta or whatever the other one is. Um, but there's technology behind that. And that is a fascinating part of the business. Our next guest is all over that stuff. Megan Clarkin joins us. She's the CEO of Criteo, or Critio? Critio. Critio. Um, it's a NASDAQ traded company. CRTO is the ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, it's a French uh, company based in Paris. Megan, thanks so much for joining us here thanks in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What do you guys do at Critio? Uh, we're an ad tech company, as you yep. said. We focus in on commerce media, retail media. Retail media. So what, what is retail media? Well, retail media is the lighting up of advertising on retailers' sites. Okay. Or even broader commerce sites like Uber. They're now selling advertising, and it's incredibly successful. It's the fastest growing area of digital advertising. What Critio does is we enable all of that for them. We make sure that the right ads gets to the right person on the right side at the right time. And we also make sure that their inventory is showing up for the demand side or the advertisers and the agencies who are looking to spend their advertising dollars across sites. So it's competing, if you like, with um, traditional, uh, tra traditional media mm -hmm. advertising. It's competing with Google. It's competing with search. It is the new wave of advertising across retailers. What's a typical advertiser in that, uh, that part of the marketplace? Is it a Coca-Cola trying to do some brand advertising? Is it a car agency trying to get me to go out and buy something tomorrow? Yeah, it's all of that. Okay. Um, so they now see a real opportunity getting in front of audiences who are actually shoppers. They're actually yep. on their buyer journey and they're really close to the point of sale as opposed to uh, it, on a uh, on a social site where it's a conversation that's yep. being that's happened and they might happen to see the Pepsi ad and it might spark a sort of thought to go. If you're actually on Costco and you're getting a Pepsi ad and they stock Costco, you're very close to that point of sale. Right. So it's a very viable advertising channel for all of those brands. So your clients are 
the the Costco's of the world as Correct. opposed to the Pepsi's of the world? Well, we service both okay. because we light up the advertising for Costco, for Macy's, for Best Buy, for half of the biggest retailers in the US. We power that advertising. But we also make that advertising inventory available to the Pepsi's, to the Cokes, to all of, we have 2,600 brands that we support to try to bring their dollars into that retail media space. All right, how has that market, it, that's been, when you think about the global advertising pie and you take the tra traditional media, not growing, declining, depending upon what you're looking at, and you look at the di di digital piece <coughs> continues to grow. Yeah. And that was, when I used to cover this four or five years ago, still growing at 20%. Yeah. Where is a digital dollar spend growth rate kind of over the next several years from your perspective? Well, if we think about retail media, okay. the retail media um, uh, marketplace is by 2025 going to be worth about $110 billion. Okay. Now, if you think on top of that, there's a star player in there right now, which is um, Amazon. Yep. And Amazon's been doing this for six to 10 years. Now, Amazon um, have uh, last quarter posted about $11 billion worth yeah, of advertising amazing. and have a run rate to about $40 billion by the end of the year. And if you think of traditional TV, over all of the TV players, that's a $66 billion market. Yep. So Amazon in the retail space, right. $40 billion. All of TV over all of the years that it's been playing, about 66, is this real opportunity in retail media that's just exploding. How are retailers in general, how are they as clients adapting to this whole concept of you can monetize your kind of yeah. your user base, that whole concept? through advertising and other things. Well, it's interesting because they're not uh, media players. Right. You know, they're retailers. But they look at Amazon and they look at Walmart and they, they, they look at Instacart and they look at how valuable this proposition is. And this is where Critio comes in because we come into them and say, hey, we've got this platform. We will represent you. We'll make sure that the ad tech works for you and we'll make sure that you're seen as compared to others for all of the advertisers that we uh, represent and all of the agencies, the five big holding companies that we represent. So we create an ecosystem right. around retail media, and they love that because they don't have to think this through themselves. Right? How does the how do the agencies think about retail media? It's not going to ABC and buying a thirtieth second spot on the Super Bowl or whatever. So it's a different type of channel. How do they view it? Yeah, it's different. These are all tactics. So if you think of an agency, their job is to make money for their brand. Yep. And so depending on what the brand is and what their objective is, they'll either go to broad-based advertising, brand advertising across traditional TV, or they'll go into a big audience on a social environment or a search environment, or they'll go to a precision, a point of sale across retailers. And so they think about that as a new way to get a return on investment for uh, for those brands, for those advertisers. So we think about retail, I think, you know, Amazon or Walmart, but there are adjacent retail industry, travel, hotels, all yeah. that kind of stuff. How is that business evolving? Because well, people are spending a lot of time on those sites as well. Yeah. Definitely. So we see retail media as sort of the core of this. And then there's this broader opportunity called commerce media. And that's exactly what you're uh, talking about. So Uber was a, a yep. client that we signed last quarter. And if you go to Uber Eats, you see Critio in action. You see the sponsored ads appearing okay. when you're searching for a product. You see their display advertising, their video advertising. And they look for all intensive centered purposes like Amazon when you go there. So it's really interesting to see how that's going to unfold. It's interesting. We see this a lot. Um, companies, platforms have this 
audience, this unique audience, yeah. and the question is how do you monetize it? The, the current example I have, and I've mentioned this to the company, is Peloton. They're yeah. searching for revenue, and I'm like, you've got X number of millions of people, and they are crazy people, because I am one <laughs> of them, and as is my household. There's, there's no, you need to go down to Peloton people and start pitching them to monetize, starts putting some ads on there. But it's so true. I it mean, is. they're a valuable audience and they're, if they're shoppers or they're in that mindset go to sell me buy some. a product related to physical fitness, then they're prime candidates. And that is, yeah. uh, that, that is kind of, kind of what you guys do and uh, kind of what a lot of the smart people in the ad tech space are trying to enable uh, is the, for folks to monetize uh, their audience. Megan Clark, and thanks so much for joining us. Megan is the CEO of Critio. Uh, again, a NASDAQ traded stock. You know, I like to flip these things around all the time. CRTO uh, is the ticker. Seven buys, six holds on the stock, and one sell. So a little bit divided street there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.